Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. All right, let's turn our attention now to the world of high-yield bonds. And we have David Towell. He is the president and the co-founder of Maglin Capital in our studios here at 1130 to tell us more. David, thank you very much for being here. I have to confess that, you know, I feel like I've lapped myself because in looking at the notes for your appearance, I noticed the words covenant light loans. And that just rings a bell, doesn't it? The covenant light loans. Can Is there a historical connection between covenant light loans today and covenant light, light loans maybe, you know, 2008? Uh, certainly. Uh, you know, we, we seem to oscillate now in the world of riskier assets uh, between extremes. Uh, there seems to be uh, a, a very hard push when we go risk on to the absolute lightest of restrictions on issuers. Uh, And then when things collapse, uh, the tightening happens almost overnight. Uh, The liquidity dries up in seconds uh, and pricing comes down very, very hard. Uh, What that means, I think, for the investor is you need to be aware of that volatility that can exist um, to the downside. Uh, You need to be prepared for it and be able to weather it. Some of the best buying opportunities may come at those moments. Um, And then to the upside, you need to appreciate uh, something very simple like the supply-demand equation, which is uh, we live in a world that has um, legacy-like thinking surrounding how we balance our portfolios vis-a-vis fixed income versus equities. Um, And at the same time, the fixed income world is radically different uh, than historically it has been. Uh, there is uh, lowest of low interest rates. Uh, we have extremely aggressive uh, borrowers uh, that are fueled by private equity firms and you know pushing for as much leverage as they possibly can. And to the extent that a certain investment doesn't work out, well, they have a portfolio of other investments that are similarly levered, and they could probably go ahead and get a grand slam or a home run out of one of those in order to go ahead and compensate for a loss in their portfolio. You know, David, I really want to hate high yield bonds right now because I'm looking at yields that are within a half percentage point from their all-time lows uh, for U.S. high yield bonds. They're not high yield. They're about 5%, which is uh, about half of what they've been over the past three decades on average. I mean, it's a a tremendous decline. And I'm looking at spreads that are also similarly depressed uh, in, uh, in high yield bonds in particularly, and in particular, and yet I don't see any reason for this market to reverse in the near term. I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I think, I'm sorry, please finish your thought. Well, no, I just, it's sort of like, you know, but at the same time, it feels terrible. It's, it's really annoying to look at this and, and say, you know, how do you find value here? Right. So I think on a relative basis, a lot of high yield managers will say what you said, which is we're doing good relative to the risk-free rate. Although we've never seen the risk premium this narrow, but at the same time, where am I going to go ahead and get real high yield. Um, And I don't see a default cycle 
coming on anytime soon, even though we're in a rising interest rate environment and so on. Wait, okay, pause. all right, all right. Okay. I actually <laughs> think that the worst point, and th- and this is the the broader point here about general portfolio management, not for specific high yield managers who have a mandate to invest in a high yield. I'm talking about the overall investor, uh, whether that be institutional or individual. Um, there is very bad risk reward ratio right now in high yield. And what I what I mean by that is, yes, there isn't an apparent risk outstanding. Uh, but at the same time, we do have some lurking potential risks like geopolitical, whether they be in this country specifically or whether they be generally around the world with regimes that are unpredictable. Um, we're also dealing with a market that has changed substantially over the past five to 10 years. There's a lot of ETF money in high yield that there wasn't once was. We do not know how that works in a bear market, in a an extreme sell-off. Uh, the liquidity um, depth is much shallower than it once was. We all know that. People have talked about it ad nauseum throughout the broker-dealer world. Um, and so at the end of the day, the downside risk is extreme and unpredictable. And the upside at this point is, to your point, we're, re- we're reaching nosebleed levels. Happy Wednesday. David Towell, thank you so much for joining us. It's definitely a, a harrowing market to cover since we see gains every day. And yet, where is that value? David Towell is president and co-founder of Maglin Capital, uh, which is based in New York. And I'm looking right now at relative yields and high yield bonds, three and a half percentage points above Treasury yield. Uh, Sid Verma, markets reporter for Bloomberg in London, uh, joins us now, and he wrote a story about how there are some remarkable similarities now to uh, the lead up to the financial crisis, uh, especially as it relates to these big rating agencies. Sid, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just give us a sense of what those similarities are? Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's obviously a very well-documented fact that um, the post-crisis financial landscape for a lot of players such as banks or insurance firms or brokers couldn't be any more different. But the big three credit rating agencies um, maintain their market share, their business models remain intact, and their profits uh, remain extremely strong. Um, at the same time, the regulatory regime that governs credit rating agencies uh, on all accounts remains um, remarkably soft uh, relative to the fact that they were blamed as the villains um, for creating a crisis in the first place. Um, the issue of pays model, which was uh, really uh, lamented um, and uh, one of the reasons cited by uh, U.S. regulators for contributing to the crisis in the first place through uh, creating conflicts of interest um, remains intact. And uh, men- many people concerned that they uh, cre- the big three agencies um, have been loosening their standards uh, to try and win business. And that crisis era behavior has been uh, noted by um, the SEC. And we've also seen um, some 
some problems in the um, asset-backed um, security industry in which um, a couple of the agencies have been faulted. Um, but it's not clear um, how much has changed um, was really the uh, nub of my piece. Well, uh, you're being diplomatic about it, Sid, so we, we appreciate that. I, I, I won't be because, you know, this thing about paying for a rating, I'm wondering if you could explain that to people, how that works. And, uh, you know, when businesses, not only when you're thinking of investing in a business, but when you're thinking of buying a business, uh, particularly if it's a large business and it has lots of relations, financial relationships, they're going to go out and they're going to get a rating. And they're going to get a rating either from, you know, maybe even an insurance company. And then they use that rating because that's part of the sale process. Speak about how people pay for ratings. You've encapsulated the issue uh, very well. Um, basically, since the 1970s, a model in which the borrower um, buys a credit rating and then the credit agency itself um, does an assessment that's supposed to be independent about its creditworthiness um, uh, kicks in. And um, a lot of that has obviously come under a lot of criticism. Um, what's interesting is there have been new uh, credit rating agencies that have emerged on the scene, which have uh, tried to uh, go on an investor pays model in which um, subscribers to uh, the credit rating um, pay for the rating and the right. issuer itself um, doesn't pay for the rating to try and reduce perceived um, conflicts of interest. Interestingly, that hasn't really got off the ground. Um, a lot of investors, um, there is a free rider issue there. A lot of the rating agency information, rating, uh, information and rating itself can be uh, consumed by third party who don't provide, um, you know, don't contribute financially to the cost of that rating. Yeah. Um, and so we've seen that model not uh, take off. Um, at the same time, the credit rating agencies argue themselves that um, what we've seen is the fact that that's a very difficult model because actually by reducing information in the marketplace, you increase trading costs. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason why that model um, exists Isn't... and there's a reason why it persists. You know, I have to say, just anecdotally, just to push back a little bit, I have heard from investors that, in fact, uh, when they want a deal rated, that is maybe smaller and a structured deal, so a securitization, they'll go to DBRS or Kroll simply because S&P and Moody's and Fitch will not rate it because they do not want to be accused of exactly what you are saying in your article. What's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, certainly their market share has been reduced and you can see that in some of their numbers for the um, asset-backed securitization market. Um, and S&P has been, you know, fingered by the SEC for and was banned from a portion of that credit market for a year. Um, but... Um, a lot of the a lot of the um, issues of that market probably pertain to uh, the fact that a lot of the uh, rated issuance is pretty uh, minuscule, um, and we've not really seen it um, achieved to its pre-crisis peak. So yes, um, a lot of the rating agencies, um, the big three, um, might be concerned about their reputational risks in that market, but it's not really from a kind of business perspective that problematic for them because um, there's been this boom. 
in corporate bond issuance and boom in emerging market bond issuance. So literally they offset. made it up in volume. Completely, right. yeah. Well, they... Offset revenues from uh, the declining revenues right. and securitization, yeah. Yeah, well done. Good uh, good to have you on. Thank you very much. Sid Verma is our markets reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us from London. Well, Apple reported earnings yesterday after the bell, and they were great. The market's cheering. Stocks are up the highest uh, to the highest levels they have ever been, dragging along a lot of other uh, shares with them. And Shira Ovide is here to cast some shade on it all. Uh, Shira Ovide is our technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. And Shira, I am just struck by the fact that our entire stock market is leveraged to an iPhone. Uh, can you give <laughs> us a sense of what uh, your main takeaways were from this earnings report? Well, it, it, it was better than feared, I think, is is the big um, top line Yay. headline, right? And <laughs> and you're right that, I mean, a large portion of Apple's share price right now is leveraged to a phone that no one has seen yet, which is the next versions of the iPhone expected to debut in September or so. And the stock's been running up um, for more than a year, basically on expectations that this new phone is going to unleash what the uh, the Wall Street smarties have called a super cycle of iPhone sales. Sure. Uh, just to move us to the numbers for just a moment, yep. because I find this staggering. This is a company that, at least as for the last 12 months, $223 billion in sales. So because my brain is small, I get rid of the billions and I just say, all right, imagine you had a business where you did $223 in sales and you were able to put 46 of it in your pocket, $46 billion in profit out of that 223. That is a staggering thing, no matter whether it's, you know, you're selling phones or, or you know, I don't know, pocket protectors. But it, it is amazing that the scale of this business continues to grow. Do you think they can continue this this momentum? I mean, can they get the fifty billion in profits? Well, fifty billion Not certainly seems in yeah. range. And you're right that I mean the scale of Apple is nuts. I mean, this is it's this nuts. is a, this, oh, its own category. Yes, it's its own category. It's the most profitable company in in the country by you know a long shot. Um, but but the big question is, what is the natural growth rate in the future for Apple? And I don't know the answer to that question, right? What what Apple had been before last year or so was a company that was huge, incredibly profitable, and growing very quickly. And the growth part of that three-legged stool kind of has fallen apart. And so what we don't know is, okay, what is the natural growth rate of a company at Apple's scale beyond the next year or so. And I don't think anybody has a realistic answer to that question. Well, and Shira, in your uh, latest Gadfly column, you talked about how sales in China have been falling for six consecutive quarters and continued in this latest uh, pay, uh, earnings period. Uh, in other places, also internationally, Apple has not gained the same kind of traction and is certainly accelerating uh, momentum as it has in the U.S. And I'm just wondering how much is priced into the shares already, right? Because we're talking about a relative game. We're not talking about Apple going out of business or uh, becoming, uh, you know, not a behemoth and an amazing performer. We're talking about, you know, is is the stock price pricing in astronomical growth that seems improbable at this point? What's your answer to that question? 
Probably is the answer to that question. I mean, the the, the stock has run up. Um, Apple is has always been a little bit of a, a tricky company to value because it's a hardware company and typically those are valued lower than other kinds of high margin software companies. Um, but even relative to Apple's own history, its stock valuation is higher than it, it has ever been or certainly has ever been in the recent history of Apple. And there is a lot of expectation of growth and, and profitability baked into the share price at this point. And obviously, you know, the stock's now at a record today. So that's even pushing up the valuation even more. India and uh, the next uh, maybe frontier for Apple, because I know that Tim Cook, the chief executive, he's already said he's focused on India and indeed production of the iPhone SE uh, is going to begin this quarter. That could be the next growth story. Yeah, India is a very interesting market, not only for Apple, but for lots of other tech companies, both domestic tech companies in India and, and foreign companies like Apple and Amazon, which is also investing heavily in India. Um, Tim Cook has said for a while now that he sees India on kind of a similar potential trajectory as China for them, which has you know been an enormous growth driver, uh, although India is lagging far behind. It, it, really, in the last year, you've seen this huge surge of people with... Um, smartphone connections with uh, there's been some moves by one of the domestic uh, cell phone companies in India to basically make almost free a uh, fast internet connection from people's phones and that's going to be a big help to anybody that's selling smartphones in India but there's a lot of hurdles i mean there there's a lot of favoritism towards um domestic companies in India apple phones are very expensive relative to what people t typically buy in India. So it's not an immediate growth story. Thanks very much for being here. Shira Ovide is Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering technology for Bloomberg News. Let's turn our attention now to China. Uh, the premier of China said yesterday that uh, all states, U.S. states, including Michigan, are welcome to strengthen exchanges with provinces and municipalities in China in order to deepen cooperation in fields such as trade, investment, manufacturing and innovations. Who is he speaking to? the governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, who happens to be in China. Here to tell us about the U.S.-China trade relation is Tom Orlick. He is our chief Asia economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Tom, uh, maybe just come in on what is the current state of U.S.-China trade relations, and what do you believe the president and the administration are going to propose? Um, I think the current picture is actually extremely positive for China, Pim. Uh, if you remember, Donald Trump came into office promising to get extremely tough on China relations. Uh, he was talking about a 40% tariff on Chinese imports, talking about naming China a currency manipulator. So far, we've had some aggressive tweets. We've had some um, uh, suggestive reports from the USTR and others. But in terms of substance, we've basically had nothing. And that means that China's exports to the US are doing really well up around 20% uh, so far this year. Well, Tom, there was a report today out of the New York Times saying that the White House is preparing to open a broad investigation into China's trade practices. This is in part to uh, possibly counter the country's effort to become a global leader in microchips, electric cars, and other crucial technologies of the future. Does that 
concern you in any way? China is a country which has an industrial strategy, so they're consciously and deliberately attempting to catch up with the technology frontier. They see what the US, Europe, Japan has in terms of high technology, and they want to get there. And they're using policy to get there.、Um, now, so far,、um, other countries have not really formulated a response to that.、Um, it's been left to corporates to decide: Do we want to put our new high-tech R&D facility in China and risk that technology transfer or not? What this seems to suggest is. Perhaps the Trump administration is going to put a bit of U.S. government strategy around a response. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I, when I see this, I start thinking to myself, "Wow, China-U.S. relationship, trade, and then paired with North Korea, and the fact that U.S. is trying to、uh, strengthen its hand to force China into action with North Korea." But what you're saying makes it sound like this is completely unrelated. I think the U.S. administration are going to be taking a view on China relations in the round.、Uh, if you remember going back to the Xi Trump meeting at Mar-a-Lago,、uh, Trump said, "Okay, we can't go in too hard on trade. We can't go in too hard on the exchange rate because we need support on North Korea."、Um, at the same time, clearly, it's possible to snap these things apart and take separate views on security, trade, intellectual property. Tom,、uh, Foxconn. Didn't the pre- the president was touting this move by Foxconn to place a、uh, a new factory、uh, in the United States, right?、Uh, maybe spend anywhere from ten to thirty billion dollars here. If you're going to praise them for doing that, how can you in the same? What what's the reaction from the Chinese leaders if you if you praise that and then launch this trade investigation? What do you think Chinese leaders and business leaders are thinking? Uh, so my first reaction to that Foxconn news was ten billion dollars. That must be the most expensive factory ever built.、Um, my second reaction was: Do U.S. politicians know what it's like working in a Chinese factory? Is this the kind of job which they really want to offer to their voters? Take a look at some of the news flow. On what happens at some of Chinese electronics assembly plants, and well, they got nets. I understand in certain places, right? They put nets so that people who jump don't, don't necessarily、uh, die. They have nets, and those nets are not being used to play soccer. That's right, Pim. Well, I, I just want to get a sense. So, if you do、uh, zoom back, and I am wondering, as we hear more about North Korea, and there was a report on Bloomberg today、uh, talking about how perhaps North Korean uh, te- uh, nuclear technologies have gotten too far for sanctions to work. I'm just wondering, what's the state of the relationship between China and the U.S. with respect to moving forward and some kind of diplomatic solution to that quagmire? I think for Beijing, there's going to be a certain amount of confusion in the new aggressive approach、um, which the Trump administration is taking.、Um, at Mar-a-Lago, Trump asked Xi to help out with North Korea,、um, and China has now actually gone further than it's ever gone in the past in terms of putting the choke on North Korea's exports. China has basically embargoed North Korea's sales of coal, which cuts off a huge source of FX income. From Pyongyang. Now you would expect that that would be welcomed by the Trump administration as a kind of constructive show of good faith、uh, by the Chinese administration. In fact, the reverse has happened. Trump's been on Twitter saying China's done nothing. China needs to do more. He's very disappointed.
Tom, uh, you've been uh, studying China. I think you've been in China for how long? A decade. <laughs> All right, a, dec a decade. Are there some things that you can describe even anecdotally to give people a quick 20-second uh, version of what they would see if they went to China if they've never been? I think the striking thing which people miss about China, Pim, um, is firstly, well, I think the thing which people miss about China when they read the coverage uh, in some of the Western press is just the optimism you have on the ground there. I think if you read, you know, Western commentary, you think the end is nigh, the credit bubble, um, the stress in the financial system. That's just not the feeling on the Chinese street. Tom Orlick, thank you so much for joining us. Tom Orlick is Chief Asia Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.